3: Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and this week I'm in conversation with George Shooter, Lee Byrne, Nigel Owens, Emily Scarrett and Gary Schofield and Rob Andrew who is making waves with Revelations in his new autobiography. Time to speak to the former Leicester Saracens and England hookers, now Director of Rugby at Hinckley Rugby, George Shoot, Hello, George. Even more, how are you? Uh, OK, well, I'll, let's have a look at the, the premiership uh, and a, a, bit, a bit of a look forward to the, the European Champions Cup. Um, wins over the weekend for Saracens, a narrow one by one point for Leicester. Gloucester unexpected 29-24 over Northampton. Exit... Uh, Reasonably comfortable over Newcastle, and the same for Bath over Worcester, and then Quinn's a bit of a thumping for uh, for Sale Sharks uh, on the wrong end of uh, a 42-26 which leaves Saracens and Exeter top of the pile. Uh, going into the uh, Europeans, what what do you think of the form of the uh, the Aviva sides?
4: Um, it's been it's been an up and down league already this year, and there's been some. Uh, strange results, some some wins that you, you probably didn't predict, and some teams have, have lost games that you probably would have predicted to win. So, I mean, uh, I think this weekend probably showed that Saracens are still uh, the, the the top team in in. Um in the Premiership, they, they looked very comfortable yesterday and uh, scored some cracking tries as well. And, and we know they're all pedigree in Europe over the last few years as well. So, yeah, they'll be pretty happy. Uh, below them, um, a bit of up and down. Yeah, Exeter and Wasps have had a bit of a blip recently. Leicester uh, uh, obviously started off very badly, but uh, uh coming back into some form now. So, it, it really is uh, difficult to sort of pick. pick uh, pick one of those sort of teams out of the the next four behind Saracens really to to, uh, predict them to do well in Europe at the moment I think.
3: Well you're uniquely qualified to comment on this point absolutely because uh, having been a hooker for both Leicester and uh, Saracens you've got the prospect now of the Saracens hooker Jamie George going up against the England hooker uh, well and captain uh, in the form of Dylan Hartley Northampton the Opening draw of Pool 2. How do you see that battle going?
4: Well, as I said to me, the Saracens uh, look like they're a form team in Premiership and I would expect them to up their game again in Europe, regardless of who the opposition is. They, they, like I said, they've, they've won that tournament uh, a couple of times now, so they do know that it's a step up in terms of quality and, and they're, they're more than capable of making that. So I think I think they'll be going into into Europe very confident this year and um, I, I don't think it makes that much difference. It'll be the English team they're playing. It's, it's the first round of Europe for them and the way they approached it the last few years, I'm sure they'll, they'll and, uh, be the very team- battle the
3: individual battle
4: <coughs> yeah um, yeah, it should be a good one. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's there's lots all over the field, isn't there? It's uh, the two, two, uh, two pretty well matched teams on paper in many respects. But um, yeah, I suppose that that's the headline battle: with, uh, Jamie George against Dylan Hartley. Um, I, I think I think Jamie George well, he scored a hat trick the weekend, so I, I would say he's uh, he's uh, in form. But I, I think he's been uh, the best thing he hooker by by quite a way in the last sort of eighteen months to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Played well on the Lions tour. Um, seems to have picked up from that and, and carried that form into, into the Premiership so uh, I think he'd probably edge that one as, as, a, as, a, as a suspect as a well edge the game
3: It'll be interesting to see um, how the how the Chiefs go in Europe I think yeah. because uh, you you've played in Europe a lot you've got a lot of experience and it is different isn't it? It
4: is very different. It is a, a, a big step up, and particularly when you play, obviously the big French teams, the big Irish teams, and um, and more recently, I suppose the Scottish teams have been stepping up a bit, and the Welsh as well. But it, it, it's uh, it's a it's a notable step up from Premiership, and uh, I think Exeter have, have struggled in Europe uh, to this point. They you know, they they're, they're a good squad. They've got a good sort of 15, 20 players. But what Europe will do is test your depth a bit and uh, get a few injuries, and suddenly you, you you're almost picking you're almost having to pick a third or fourth choice player in a position at times and um, that, that's where they've come unstuck to it. just the, the, the depth of the squad that hasn't been as good um, uh, as their, their first team if you, if you so
3: I mean Well funnily enough they've, they've got Glasgow and the way Glasgow are playing at the moment the way they're being asked to play with the multiple uh, offloads is it, a sore of game which uh, you know I, I would fear for Exeter if they came against a very big French pack mm. who really ground them down but that sort of game I think they'd probably be equipped to cope with
4: yeah, it's, it's probably a good matchup for Exeter. You're right. I mean, they they do play quite an expansive game themselves. Uh, they're probably a bit more direct than people give them the credit for. Everyone, everyone talks about Exeter playing a, a sort of wide wide game, but they've got some pretty good runners in the midfield in, yeah. in Witten and uh, and people like that to to get them over the game line. But yeah, you're right. I think you know Glasgow Glasgow also play an attractive brand of rugby on, on their plastic pitch up there, and they'll probably enjoy coming down to uh, Exeter, which is a, a pretty big pitch as well. So uh, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of uh, a matchup, you I, I, I'd agree with you there. I think the the extras Achilles' heel will come against a, a really big lumpy pack that can um, really sort of take it to them because they, they, traditionally they've um, been pretty good at the tight stuff themselves, and the balls and the, and the scrums and lineouts and stuff. So if they get taken all up front there, that's probably the way to beat them.
3: What do you what do you make of Bath? I mean, you know, they was uh, was struggling at the moment, so I'm not surprised that at home they 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 put them away. But uh, the fifth in the table, and and yet you know, I. I t- I'm waiting for Bath. You know, I'm from the era when Bath just won absolutely everything yeah, yeah. all the time, and I think I'm still psychologically affected by that. And I, yeah. I, I expect them to be to be better than than they are. are. Are they anywhere? Are they any nearer, in your opinion, in finding that elusive consistency? Do you know what?
4: I really don't think so, mate. I've, I've had this conversation with somebody the other day. I think it must be so frustrating to be a Bath supporter or a Gloucester supporter Teams like that. You look at them on paper. You look at the sport they've got, the coaches they've got. You think, wow, that's yeah, that's a top outfitter. So that's uh, yeah. the facilities are great, and well, maybe not maybe not the wreck but <laughs> yeah, Farley House and and Kingsholm. These are great places to play rugby and, and train all that. And then on the field, they just week after week they they sort of give you false storms and you know? they'll. Uh, sort of came up to Leicester and won on the opening day, and since then have have been pretty poor. Um, Lost at home to Newcastle, didn't they? And you know, it just must be so frustrating to watch them week after week because you, you, you know they they should be better. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, I don't I don't see you know, Blackadder. I've got a lot of time for Blackadder, but if he can't if he can't turn around that sort of malaise, and uh, I don't know who can down there. Maybe they need a sort of Jack Rail to come back from the from the past and, mm. and sort of whip them up into shape like that again. But I, I just yeah, I don't see him. I don't see them being a particularly big sweat. They're, they're, I'm sure they'll be top four in the Premiership, but I just don't see them being a sweat at all in, in Europe, to be honest.
3: And uh, one of the proving point, gra- grounds uh, there, because they do have, have, have some pedigree in Europe, for, is Wasp, but they've lost four in a row now. At, uh, their, their injury situation is far from good. Yeah. And uh, I'm just wondering... Uh, when when you get on a roll, I've uh, lost all wins. It's very difficult to break that, and yeah. and they've they're, they've got a tricky one, a Kingspan Ulster away for the first one. Can you mm-hmm. see him getting any change there?
4: I've, I don't I mean again you said there, the injuries are stacking up for them and um, they're, they're again not very deep up front their sort of front five is, is a little bit lightweight on the European stage I think uh, with a few injuries chucked in there they, they could really struggle and it looks like someone like Willie, Willie LaRue looks to be a bit of a shadow of himself I don't know if he's playing with an injury or not but he just seems to be a little less effective but I, th- I suppose when you bear in mind that you have Kirtley Bill on your side last year he, he, he creates space and opportunities for other people he's gone so who, who Who's taken over that uh, yeah. that role? I guess no one. And Cipriani is obviously uh, a key for them. Who, who, who's out injured and will be for for a while. Um, I, I think you know you, away away in Ireland, any uh, in, of in the Irish provinces is a is a tough ask, uh, yeah. even if you're at full strength. But with a few men down and, and uh, on a losing run, that's that's a very big mountain to climb.
3: Well, I can't though. Even though I look uh, as hard as I can, see anything outside the the you know the top. Uh, Names uh, of the last two or three seasons, and there's only been f- you know four sides who've who've made up the ma- majority of semi-finals in the last three years. So, can you see anyone coming from outside that you know Leinster, Montpellier, uh, Saracens sort of uh, thing? Maybe Toulon but Toulon uh,
4: not, yeah. I don't, I, I don't really, to be honest. I think uh, you, you, you never know what happened with with a Claremont. Claremont can can turn up on on any day and beat anyone um, if they if they feel, feel in the mood. Um, but again, you don't know what their mood is. to yeah. um, you know, Toulouse, what they're looking a little bit. I'm not actually. i have not watched a lot of the top fourteen this season, but um, I, I think Toulouse are sort of going through a bit of a transitional sort of stage of the moment. So I wouldn't wouldn't really expect them to be uh, challenging. And I yeah. It's, 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 um, it's a little bit depressing at times I think uh, Saracen's like I said looked to be my, my sort of top English club yeah um Leinster Leinster and are again very difficult to split those two and, and then there's sort of the three or four big French teams um, yeah. as always with the French you know, if, if they turn up then they can dominate but yeah. uh, they still have that tendency to go walk about at times and yeah. you always find yourself questioning how much they want the European Cup and um, Toulon have, have, have won it uh, quite a few times recently but uh-huh. you just still get that feeling with the French that the uh, top four teams are uh, meeting meet uh, drink and that's what they aim for.
3: Yeah your view there's been a lot made about the uh, the, the new laws and the uh allegation that's contributed to injuries. Now I looked into this quite carefully and first of all, you've only had five you know, four or five rounds, so you can't really um <sighs> Make anything out of that but the but the increase in uh, collisions and tackle rates in the premiership itself yeah. have gone up about nine percent year on year from about two thousand and thirteen, and the new law trials weren't in then yeah. so you can't you know that doesn't make sense logically what what you can say is that the collisions are increasing and so are injuries just quite how the uh, responsibility lies for that you know the, no one can be uh, eminently sure about but but it, can you i mean I, it's changed such a, a lot, even in recent years. Mm. Is, there any, is there any answer to that? Is it just inevitable when you have more collisions?
4: Well, I think it is inevitable, really, um- it's just the nature of the game, nature of the players. Every every year you come, well, even when I was playing, and every year you come back, and young fellas were <laughs> bigger and stronger than they were when when, when yep. you left the season before. Yeah, people people are getting bigger. There's more and more sports science involved at younger levels, so you're getting players who are uh, obviously uh, doing a lot in the gym, but also naturally quite quite big. And it's it's inevitable. I think the, the nature of the game as well. It's it's a, it's a very attritional game, and uh, probably in the last sort of, ten years or so it has become more about who can. Run harder than who, and uh, who can who can win the game line and and things like that. Um, yeah, I, 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 injuries are part of the game. I think everyone knows that, and yeah, you, you can you can. Uh, get stats together and make up all sorts of things for it. Uh, perhaps something to do with the way injuries are reported now. You know, yeah. Ten years ago, you, you, you didn't necessarily have to report all these injuries. Now you do. So inevitably, there's going to be more injuries. Uh, there's more awareness about head injuries, more awareness yeah. about long-term health issues and that sort of thing. So I, I think all, all this combined, you know, maybe the ball's in play a bit more now with some of these uh, different law variations. Um, maybe that's contributing. I think it's just inevitable that, that, that uh, as you said, over whatever period of time the injuries have, have, and collisions have, have increased uh, year on year that's just going to carry on and I don't know where the ceiling is to be honest
3: yeah now the, um, I'll ask you this you may, you may not have a view because I may have sprung it upon you but uh, <laughs> Rob Andrews uh, <laughs> uh, book is out and yeah. uh, he's um, he's well, I don't know. Some people have said he's thrown Lancaster under the bus. My, my, I'll give you my, my view. My view, uh, But have you, have you got a view on that? Uh, the, what he's comments? Well, I mean, to be honest, uh,
4: he, he's obviously been earwigging some of my conversations because whenever <laughs> people ask me about that 2015 World Cup, I, I pretty much uh, said similar things to to what Rob said. And I, I do believe Lancaster spent too long building a culture and trying to reconnect and do this and actually forgot his job was to make England uh, the best team in the world. And... Mm. Uh, I, I'm, I was I was lucky enough to be around some of the players who are, are in that time. I won't name them. Or I won't won't give you any sort of in, inside gossip there. But you know, the, the conditions at the, the camps were not particularly conducive for uh, top end performance for rugby. Okay. Really, and, and the Sam Burgess uh, was a sort of the icing of the cake. Really, that sort of made it all. Um, Just, yeah, it's just an unbelievable
3: sort of situation, really. Well, I mean, Um, I I, I have no problem with people giving Squeaky lots of stick, not (laughs) none whatsoever, provided he deserves it. And I keep reminding people that they don't really, there's a lot of selective memories going on about who did what around that time, because um, Stuart's first appointment was from Rob, but he was asked by the then finance director of the RFU who had to step into the CEO role because the RFU had got themselves into such a mess that they didn't have either a CEO yeah. or a chairman of the management board. And that decision was made for one Six Nations only. Now, if Stuart came in. He did a good job. Uh, the England came second, and I and a lot of other people – uh, who are now saying they didn't say anything of the sort, said, look, we'll give him a go, he's English. You know, why not? Well, there's no out- other outstanding candidate. Nick Mallett was one, but I believe it was be preferable for an English player. Yeah. You know, and he went on and, uh, and and things were made from there. But the the firm appointment was made by five people from a panel of, uh, included Richard Hill, Sir Ian McGeekin, Ian Ritchie. Yeah. I, think, poor, I think Metcalf was the other one. Um, and from that point on, Andrew had nothing to do with the... Uh, the senior teams. And, and I was, uh, you know, I spoke to, I'm, I'm quite reasonably good friends, I think, with, with, with Stuart. And he was, uh, you know, post-fact, he was really unable to give me a convincing reason as to why, you know, Burgess merited his place in the squad. Now, I wasn't blaming Burgess at all for mm. for the loss, but it, it was just symptomatic of, uh, to me, of what you've said it, it is that there were things going on at the time which were not really the most important things in, you yeah. know, t- t- to prepare for a World Cup. So I've no problem giving Squeaky Stick, but not for things that he didn't really, you know, yeah. that he has partial responsibility for. Yeah, it, it does. I mean,
4: it's it sort of, I guess, because he's got a book out, he's raking over the old coals, but he uh, does sort of uh, keep himself out. I mean, it, 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 his role at the time was um, I think he was ahead head of professional rugby so he had the yes, umbrella was, yeah. of, of the whole of the professional rugby yeah. so he sort of picked and chose when he was involved with in England because uh, you know, when they were losing in the World Cup <laughs> he was conveniently um, taking care of the uh, Saxons or the 20s or something like that um, so I mean yeah, it, it's, it's one person's view I suppose and I, 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 I'm, I'm similar to you really Rob I don't mind giving you a stick but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, well, yeah it's, it, it, to, to sell books I suppose you've got to, you've got to say stuff like that
3: Right, George. Thank you very much. R- best of luck with Hinkley. I know it's a very, very involved job. Yeah. Uh, so uh, come back at later in the season and tell us how it's going. Nice so Cheers, Moran. Top man. Take care, mate. Bye-bye. OK, now time to uh, have a Celtic perspective on uh, all things Europe and indeed the Pro 14. Very pleased to say we can speak to the former Osprey, Scarlet's Dragons, Claremont, Wales, Lions, fullback, Lee Byrne. His is out and a clever title, this The Byrne Identity. I like that. Who came up uh, with that, Lee? I believe it or not, Brian, I did. <laughs> uh, you all, are, that's, do you take credit for that? I, I said, ah, a a a belted, belted title. <laughs> yeah, I think, I'm going to take credit for that one. There's
0: quite, there's quite a few Thrown in the mix there was a uh, bird in the candle that was another one
3: um, <laughs> yeah. no you you got that you got that one right absolutely right now but, mate writing a book is is a it's is quite a difficult process depending it doesn't matter whether you do it first person or you do it with a ghost writer how did you find the actual process of doing it
0: well I've, I've done it with a, with a ghost writer Richard yeah. Morgan um, ITV um, he's Cambridge uh, Blues so you know he's a he's quite a sharp character I'm trying to remember most uh, most of the things that have happened, but I, you know, sometimes I have to ask my mates, and because I think I've had too many knocks on the head, I must have because uh, I I couldn't seem to remember much. But uh, when you <laughs> actually when you actually I've, I've proof you know, read it through now and you know, thinking back, I think you know, I'm quite proud of what I've uh, what I've done. Yeah, uh, I never would have thought I would you wrote know, the book when I first started out playing rugby for a start, and uh, yeah, it's just, you know, when I sort of sat back and read, I think I, you know, I, I comp, you know, quite accomplishing something.
3: Uh huh. What um, in in particular? What 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 are the two or three things that? I mean, it's, it's very difficult to 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 put them in, in order. So I'm not asking you to do that. But what the the the, the real the real highlights for you? Is in the book. Uh, well, the come out of the book. You know, the the, the the your your personal personal or playing career. Um,
0: I think you know coming into rugby quite late. I didn't turn professional until the, the age of twenty one. So I experienced quite a lot before that. Yeah. Maybe you know the players nowadays. You know nowadays come through the academies, and you know sort of don't, don't see the other side of it. I and mean, I had a lot of jobs before I played rugby, and you know come from quite a, a rough background. And uh-huh. so a lot of people, what probably a lot of people didn't know, they just see the first playing rugby. Um, you know, for the Lions, for Wales, for Claremont, but they don't see how I got there. Yep. Um, so that you know that's probably my my proudest moment. I, you know, apart from obviously playing for Wales and, and the Lions and.
3: Do you still have a lot of affection for those 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 you know, those humble root roots and the the way you came through and the the people you played with the teams and so on?
0: Yeah, massively. I've, you know, I've gone through all my teams and you know I've been searching for photos from my amateur teams. I've found. I've been pestering everybody for the last you know six months to get, and you know it's great. to you know, so, you know I I still regularly go to my local club, so I haven't changed. I did never change the person, and you know I haven't now. And I have you know, met sort of. A, Mentioned a lot of people in my book that you know, no, nobody will have the yeah. idea who yeah. they are, but they they my you know friends from growing up, and uh, you know I think it's important that you get them in there.
3: Uh, well, let's have a look at the the, the Pro Fourteen because um, unfortunately, you know the while the scarlets are uh, you know obviously flying, ospreys and dragons this year have been a bit. Uh, I mean they lost to Cardiff. That's how bad it has got.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's, well, I think uh, the ospreys are on their worst run now. Um, since 2002 I believe uh, five and on, on a bounce and you know they've got Claremont coming up and then Harrison so it could be potentially seven games there yeah. uh, I think that's looking probably likely and I don't think they've got that that cutting edge is, you know I think getting the scrum they're losing Reece Webb as well next season so I think the powers have turned now to, down to West to uh, the Scarlet who have been been fantastically well you know I think them, and even the Dragons have shown a little sign of improvement and the Jackman as well. Um, I watched them on the weekend. They were massive in Cardiff, like you said. I don't know what's going on in Cardiff. but um,
3: Well, Scarlets have got to a, a, be a tricky, a tricky opener uh, away at Toulon. Now, Toulon are not quite the, what they were, but still, you know, that's not an easy place to play. What, how do you think they'll do there? Yeah, Scarlets have
0: always, you know, in the competition, they've always come up with one big... Result last year, they won the league, and this year they um, seem, don't seem to be slowing down. They've, they've hit that form story away, which is you know, it's the it's mark really of how far they've come. I, I think you know, I, I think they've got they're believing in themselves now, yeah. But, uh, yeah, like you said, I think it's going to be tough out there and that in the, the Mayor. It's uh, you know, it is a daunting place to go, and like you said, they haven't hit the heights too long. Uh, they're probably building again now. if they could be, They're on the radar for signing a couple of big names, obviously, Reese Web has gone there. Um, but uh, I think it's
3: too long mike's the edge. It. And uh, Claremont, uh difficult to know exactly, you know, how that will turn out because such a tremendous uh, squad and so on. Yet not really got the re- you know the the full rewards. I don't think for it. But they've opener. It's a way, all right. But but there are Ospreys who, as you say, are not uh, are not. Dear. What can we expect from Clermont this year?
0: Well, they they probably had the worst start to the top forty for a long time. I think I believe they're about tenth in the league, and they've yeah. lost the last three games. So, you know, they're not. You know, speaking to two boys out there, they they're not playing their best rugby at the moment. Um, but with with Clément, you know, they can turn it on um, quite easily, and they've got the players to do that. Whereas that you know the Ospreys unfortunately haven't at the moment, and uh, you know they, they they won't have anything to lose. I don't think the Ospreys are coming from, away from a different tournament now. But um, you know, I just think it's, it could be. Uh, it could get a bit messy, I think, if uh, if Claremont uh, are on, on find
3: their uh, their form. Well, Lee, yeah. uh, yeah, uh, yeah. we will we will soon find out, and I'm I'm particularly interested to see how Claremont go because a, a bit of an enigma or, or be a very yeah. talented one. Mate, very best of luck with the autobiography. I hope it sells really well. Thanks, Brian. Okay, now we can turn our attention to a man who's been driving a pink tractor whilst wearing a pink rugby refereeing kit. It's all to uh, raise awareness of breast cancer. However, in his case, I think he's, he's like he's, he's looking like a bit of a caricature, Nigel Adams. I'm, st- I'm still in pink, <laughs> by the way. I <laughs> mean, um, uh, you, look, look, you, look. We, we we know all about this. You don't have to go over the top with it. I, he's, uh, the, the everyone knows the uh, the pink ribbons, of breast cancer awareness. Where 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 was it? Where did all this take place?
5: Yeah, it was uh, near where I live, really. Um, the girl who uh, was very close friends, was growing up, um, a very good friend of mine, she's suffering from breast cancer. So what she did when her sister got married in the summer, they had like a, a big fundraising day the other day after and raised about £50,000. And now they've already raised about 10000 from this tractor run on, on, on the weekend. So it's quite a common thing around here, really, the tractor runs now, where people get out their old vintage tractors and a lot of the modern tractors. And there were 141 tractors taking part, really, in, in, in the fund. Raising so yeah, it was good. Not very often I get a chance to be home on on a Saturday. Yeah, usually, we're refereeing. So it, it was it was great timing that I was actually home and be able to to take part and, and, and raise a bit of money for you know for a very worthy cause that uh, I'm sure every one of your listeners you know would have been touched in some way by somebody in the family um, from this horrible disease. So it, it was great to take part and, and put a little bit back in. Really,
3: Nigel. Uh, just speaking to Lee there, and he, he majored on the fact that. Uh, His career was not the uh, stereotypical academy, and he, you know, he had a lot of uh, different different roots and different uh, junior clubs and so on. Um, How I know, I know you're uh, quite keen to to keep your roots. How important do you think it is for the game? Not to forget that the top sides do not produce all the players and that uh, the junior sides do need to be financed and looked after properly for this uh, pres- you know, procession of, of talent to be even there to be nurtured.
5: Yeah, hugely important, I think, Brian, and particularly in rugby, probably more than any other sport. A lot of players will will develop quite older on in 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 this sort of teens. You know, some will develop quite young, and you can identify the talent of the future maybe at ten, eleven, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years of age within the different age groups and the academies. But also, as well, I think what well, we shouldn't forget uh, are the other talented players who may not be at that level at that age, but can certainly develop a little. Bit later in, in in the late teens, and the most important part of the game for me is the grassroots. That's the most important part of the game, and and I think now you know we we need to look after the grassroots because that's ultimately where all the players. That's where the players start playing because they enjoy and love the game, and and I think it's hugely important to look to look after that. I think, and um, you know, a lot of people are saying at the moment. Um, a lot of grassroots rugby is is dying and struggling. Well, maybe they are struggling but what people don't appreciate as well if you look at the international level and then the professional and the premiership level here in Wales where you've got 16 clubs playing in the premiership and they have 8 players on the bench every Saturday. So you have a huge amount of substitutions on the bench and that is something I'd like to see changed. You know, when you see a lot of the 2nd, 3rd, 15s and sides maybe struggling to put a side out now on occasional Saturdays, what people don't realise that a lot of teams above them have now got eight on the bench there could be another four or five players sitting in the stand not involved on that Saturday so I think it's hugely important I think the game is looked after at at all levels I think and particularly in, in the young talent coming through as well that people get you know people Every, we, we play and get involved in rugby because we love the sport, and, and I think that's important that people get a chance to play at whatever level they're playing and encouraged to play and enjoy. And then I think the cream will always get to the top, you know, and how it gets there, does it get there, you know, and better prepared and everything like that is, is, is down to the professional setup that, that we have. So it's hugely important that, you know, all levels of the game are looked after, and particularly the young players coming through as well.
3: Nigel, yeah, when we spoke uh, relatively recently, you were off um, for a meeting. Uh, I think uh, Ah yes,
5: yes. In, yeah. in, in, in out in Paris for preparation for, for the European Cup this That's weekend, right really, yeah. so
3: anything uh, important come out of that you want to tell us about? Um, nothing that that jumps
5: out really Brian it was just sort of you know everybody getting focused and trying to get consistency because what you're going to get now you're going to have you know, referees or refereeing in the Aviva Premiership, the Pro 14 coming together, top 14. So it's just sort of, you know, a final message, really, so that we're all on the same wavelength and we can get the consistency right across the board. So it's just going through a couple of the of the new... New law directives and stuff that are random sure that we're all up to speed and aware of, of those and there's always little things, you know, that crop up in conversation. Um, for example, you know, who who can pick the ball up at the back of the ruck. Um, things I like got to discuss, well, you know, we discussed then if anybody who's physically bound in the ruck cannot pick the ball up. So if you're standing at the back of the ruck and you're just leaning on the ruck, so you're not fully bound to it and you're the last man, you can pick the ball up. But if you're actually physically in the ruck and you're Wound and you're reaching back to pick the ball up, then, then that is going to be um, a, a penalty offence. So, the things that we're all discussing, so we're all on the safe pavement, so we can get as consistency right across the board because you're going to get. Not only different styles of teams coming together you know, within the European Cup from different tournaments but but also as well you've got referees from different tournaments coming together so it's hugely important that we're we're all on the same page and we are all on the same page it's just sort of ironing out those questions that people had about certain aspects of the game really
3: Okay, Nigel, short and sweet this uh, week but thanks very much and we'll speak to you again next week
5: Cheers, pleasure Brian Cheers mate Bye -bye. Bye bye
3: Telegraph Sport are running extracts all week from Rob Andrews' new autobiography. And on Monday, you could read about Stuart Lancaster's reign. Rob joins us now to explain a little further about what went on behind the scenes. Rob, uh, hello. Hi, Brian. Uh, social media is never the uh, bellwether of everything. Uh, but it's fair to say it's had a bit of a mixed reception.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, look, at the end of the day, it's a um, thing about head coaches' roles is... Um, Getting getting selection right, isn't it? That's the key to all of this.
3: Well, I mean, first of all, you know, but some people have asked me yours to 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 say, you know, what, why, why write the the book now?
1: Well, it's it's actually it, the, the whole book. I mean, and obviously, there's only been a, a small fraction um, about uh, the World Cup in 2015. The whole book is yeah. really about the journey of um, professional rugby. So it goes back yeah. right back to 95. And and talks about the last 22 years. So it's actually really a sort of history of rugby going professional, what the issues have been um, both in this country and in others, but particularly this country, obviously, with me going to Newcastle um, when it first went professional, then the RFU. And a little bit of a look forward as to what some of the problems are for the game and what some of the problems have been all through professionalism. And, you know, has it been a good thing? Uh, you know, what's been good about it? What's been not so good?
3: Yeah, um, inevitably, given the serialization, people are going to only focus on the bits that they they can see, and there's a, there's a taken there. And I've already uh, said I was having a little chat with George Shooter earlier on, and I said, I, I don't mind you getting lots of stick for things that are your responsibility. And I really don't have that problem. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I like people to be factually correct, and I think people have got. Very selective memories, or they've got they've the, they, you know, because the the Lancaster. Let's just clear this up. The Lancaster appointment, the first appointment from Stewart was in what circumstance?
1: Well, he was he was appointed as the interim coach yes. um, after Martin stood down in in the December of two thousand and eleven, and he was interim coach going into the Six Nations of uh, two thousand and twelve. Because obviously there wasn't much time. Um, For the for the team to be put together, so Stuart was appointed interim head coach, and then at the end that was on
3: your recommendation.
1: That was on my recommendation, yeah. In terms of getting us through the Six Nations of 2012, uh, rebuilding um, sort of obviously what had happened in New Zealand in 2011, and 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 the position post Martin. And then there was going to be a decision taken at the end of the Six Nations 2012 as to what would happen next, and that's when the RFU put a panel in place. Um, Ian Ritchie had been appointed chief exec by then. He'd come in in the February of 2012 during the Six Nations, and then there was a, a whole recruitment process in um, at the end of tw- at the end of the Six Nations in 2012, and from that Stuart was appointed. Um, as the permanent head coach,
3: one of the um, comments that I've I've read, not necessarily widely, but a few people made it, is that uh, Stuart wasn't given the backup that uh, it was required.
1: Hmm, I'm not sure how what 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 is meant by the backup. The, I mean, the union gave gave an enormous amount of support um, all the way through, um, and obviously, you know, Stewart himself wanted uh, to get Wayne Smith in. There was an attempt to try and do that. Um Andy um Andy Farrell obviously came in. Um and look at the end of the day, I think we all know that um head coaches are a certain breed and, and they you know that they, they they live and die by the by the decisions they take around selection. Um and that if ultimately if you look back over history, clearly head coaches are defined by their results. And their results are defined by getting selection right. That that is ultimately the number one job of a head coach. Um, the head coach will choose who he who he sort of speaks to um, and who he relies upon. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think you and I both know that they all make their decisions um, and live and die by them.
3: Because people have been saying that this is a disavowal of responsibility from from your part in this and so on. Did you have anything to do with the Burgess selection?
1: Uh, nothing whatsoever, uh, and in fact, um, uh, my the, the, the sort of line management of the England uh, head coach wasn't part of my role um, after the after Martin when Martin was head when Martin stood down. Um, I mean, I think I had three different job descriptions in in my time at the RFU, and they're all in the book as 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 they as you'll find out. And look, this is not. This is just facts. This is what happened. I, you know, the England head coach position reported into the chief exec from um, effectively from the beginning of 2012. Okay. That was a recommendation from the review of the 2011 World Cup, and you know, therefore, you know, not that I, not that I'm trying to um, abdicate any responsibility, but you know, I, the Burgess thing was something that was driven by by Stewart.
3: Uh, for what it's worth, I mean, I am of, of, of the same view. I, I don't subscribe to the fact that one person made any difference on their own to the campaign whatsoever. Uh, and it's not a rugby league thing. You know, I feature rugby league on here. I like rugby league. I've always watched it and I've played it, uh, even when I wasn't supposed to. But, um, th- you know, the I, I just felt at the time that the selection wasn't merited on form. There was a lot of hope value there. And I made the point at the time, Consistently in many, many columns, that the issue when it came to pass and when he was in the squad was one which dominated every single, you know, uh, meeting that was ever held with the press thereafter. When's he going to play? When's he not going to play? How's he going to play? Where's he going to play? You know, at a time when actually that was just one of the problems that uh, England were going to face. And I just felt it was a hostage to fortune and, 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 and detracted from... The overall uh, effort in you know, a in a way that was was seemingly to me certainly foreseeable and avoidable.
1: Yeah, and I think that probably goes to the heart of it in the end is you know <laughs> what, what was the decision merited and what effect did it have on the rest of the squad and the, and the leaving out of Luther Burrell. I think it's been well documented that that caused some issues within the squad. Um and it sort of also went against everything that had been done in the previous three years, which was about earning the shirt, building the right to be in the team, um, working hard together to get to the the two thousand fifteen World Cup, which was clearly always gonna be a massive, you know, as we know, to play in a home World Cup. It doesn't get any bigger than that. Yeah. And I think it I think in the end we all know that, that teams are pretty fragile things. At the highest level, and and they can be undermined quite quickly. Um, and I think that you know Sam himself didn't didn't play particularly badly, but it but it it just sort of caused um, some upset within the group, and and it started to, as you just said, the whole build up to the World Cup from the moment they remember the last time England played a, a sort of. Um, a competitive game, a really competitive game before the World Cup was when they beat France 55-30-odd at Yeah. Yeah. Um, And at that point, it actually, although we played poorly in Ireland that season, you know, we weren't playing, we were playing reasonably well. We'd beaten Australia in the autumn. We'd beaten Wales in Cardiff and they were the two teams that we had to beat in the group. And to win the group... And we were sort of not nailed on to the final, but we had a, a road to the final. Yeah. Um, and we had two matches that were going to be huge, but um, we'd beaten those two teams in the previous 12 months. Yeah. Um, and it, it just never quite came together.
3: Okay, well, let's look to the, you say the, prob- the, you know, the part of the, the book is a discussion of the problems uh, and the benefits arising out of rising under professionalism, and the problems yet to come. What, what, what in particular can you foresee on the uh, horizon as, as specific problems?
1: Well, I think they're there now. I think that the, as we speak, um, and and the the conflicts around you know season structure, yeah. the international game, what the club owners want versus perhaps what the union wants and what the players want, and that's been that's been there for 22 years. That's been there since day one when. You know, 22 years ago, and it's in the book, you know, we nearly got a central contract with the RFU, um, nearly, but not quite. That was in 1995, 96. Then the club owners came in, um, Sir John Hall, and and the rest is sort of history. Um, And it's been a constant battle, really, not for power initially, and then it's obviously calmed down a little bit in the last few years. But but that conflict of interest is never, ever going to go away.
3: And and I mean, got a... your your final job was to, to 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 broker the next deal that's going to cover all this. Are you saying that that's not going to hold?
1: Uh, I think I think sadly, it's sort of almost under pressure already. Um, you know, it was, it was designed to go through to twenty twenty three World Cup, um, but but one of, there was a, there's an issue post twenty nineteen which is brewing now, which is around the season structure. Yeah. And the, and the old, you know, age-old question of um, too many overlaps between international rugby and club rugby, and and the club owners don't want their assets to be going missing as often as they are. They want them to play in more club matches than they can currently do so. And that we've been having that debate, you know, for for 20 years, um, and it's it re- you know, it's not going away. And and now it looks as if it's being pushed to another level which you know one of the solution appears to be let's have an even longer season so the players can you know play more for their clubs outside of international windows and the quid pro quo is that they'll have more rest during the season well you know the players clearly are pushing back on that and it you know when you when you throw in all the injuries that are currently in the modern game you know it 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 Feels to me like there's, you know, there's, um, there's an issue brewing at the moment.
3: Well, it's certainly, you know, when I've spoken to Damien Hopley and, and several players, they, you know, they, they say it's all very well saying, you know, we will give me a rest? But then things just don't turn out that way because of <coughs> injuries and, and so on. And by the way, you know, if you're contracted to the end of the season and you're still playing, irrespective of the fact that it's only a, a possibility rather than the probability of playing, you're not on holiday.
1: Well, exactly, I think then there's the mental and physical side of it, which is an you know incredibly long season and we see we see what happens at the back of the Lions tour when that is extended into July, and players come back and we've still even this season we have seen some lions test players playing pretty much at the start of September despite having you know played into July in the third test yeah. um and you know these these issues i mean sadly um nobody's actually resolved the problem um and the problem hasn't gone away in terms of trying to fit it all in and this is just the latest incarnation of of you know what the problem will be um and because there are no there are no central contracts in England and that that sort of debate probably went away quite some time ago you're constantly looking at um at both sides trying to Trying to improve their position, and it's, a, it's sort of in the end, it's a pretty untenable position to be honest. And and you're looking now. I think the other challenge is that you know the clubs are still losing money 22 years on from it going professional.
6: Yeah,
1: um, and that's mainly driven, which I have to say I, I do find quite difficult to understand. That they've they've increased revenue significantly over the last decade. And yet they've managed to allow the salary cap to rise in excess of the, of the revenue increases. Yeah. So their losses are still exactly as the same as they were 15 years ago, which, you know, doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. So the financial pressure is still there as well.
3: Uh, well, it is certain that um, that financial pressure is not going to go away. Rob, I'm sorry, we haven't got time for any more now, but uh, I'll, I'll speak to you again about this. Thanks very much, mate.
1: Pleasure. Cheers, Brian.
3: Bye-bye. Time now to switch our attention to the uh, Terrell's Premier 15s, which is the women's competition. Very quickly, the results uh, over the weekend. Richmond 48, uh, Worcester 12, Bristol 28, Gloucester-Hartbury 20, Quinns 36, darlington Modern Park 10, Loughborough-Lightning 30, Furwood-Waterloo 19, Saracens 30, Wasps 0, which leaves Quinns. Uh, new entrance, I think, uh, into the this tournament, uh, and not actually with a big tradition of, uh, of successful women's rugby. Top of the table, uh, I can now speak to the uh, BT Sport pundit. Can I say that's right? Isn't it, Emily scarrett <laughs> Hi there, you're all right. <laughs> Hi there, yes, Quins. Uh, obviously, being a former uh, Quins. Captain albeit uh, not of the ladies' side. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm quite uh, chuffed about this. But uh, how how uh, how expected was this?
5: Um,
2: reasonably so. So um, Harlequins last season kind of were taking over the the team that was Aylesford Bulls. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they kind of had a, a merger, a, a change in name, a change in um, um, kind of club, I suppose. And, and now they're fully associated with obviously Harlequins. Yeah. Um, so. Ailsford Bulls last year won the premiership so and obviously there's largely um, the same players and what have you in this season so yeah they're, they're always going to go well and they're going to be right up there for sure.
3: Now at the moment you're not playing because you're concentrating on the sevens but, yeah. so that leaves you free to do to do what? Do you see many of the women's games? Do you, do you pick one to go to each weekend or have you got any ambassadorial roles or, or things like that?
2: Yeah it's, it's quite nice actually um, to kind of not not be attached to any of the clubs and just, just be able to kind of go along as a, a bit of a neutral really. I was at the the Quinn's Darlington game at the weekend. Um obviously, you know, I know loads of the girls throughout all of the clubs, but so it's it's quite nice to go along and, yeah. and show a bit of support for them when they're playing. As it gets colder that that support might dwindle a little bit. But um yeah, it's it's you know, the the new premiership is an amazing thing and um yeah it's it's awesome to see it up and running and you know, there's some been some fantastic fixtures already and some you know, interesting results, though. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to see how it how it all pans out. Really.
3: Well, Marley Marley Packer is, is one of the names that, that stands out from England's uh, uh, World World Cup um, sojourn, and uh, she's playing with a Saracens team that are doing as well as you'd expect. But who else at Saracens? Uh, who, what sort of emerging players are, are coming through there? Um, so
2: there's uh, Zoe Harrison, who is a ten. Um, she's been playing a lot in. The National Academy stuff, um, age group stuff. She's, you know, shown a huge amount of promise, which is is really exciting in terms of international stuff. So, yep. you know, when you when you're playing behind forwards such as Marley Packer, Poppy Clear, um, you know, and many many of the other Saracens forwards, it it certainly helped to make your life a little bit easier when you're sat in the ten shirt. So, yeah, she's she's looking really good. I think she's she's pretty solid from the boot this season as well in terms of her goalkeeping. So. Um yeah she's definitely one to look out
3: for for the future. Well the uh, the Bristol win um against Gloucester hartbury wh- um was that how much of a surprise was that it was played at Ashton Gate under lights um yeah uh, uh, Gloucester and Harbury have been a, a a strong team
2: yeah, they have. Um, they're in, they're a new side this season, so they were a little bit unknown um, initially. They made some really good signings. People like Sarah Byrne, Zoe Oldcroft, Kerry Lars going to Blackburn going there this season. So they're, they're looking really strong. And yeah, it was a little bit of a shock, if I'm honest, that they um, lost to Bristol. Obviously, Bristol, it was their home game in front of big crowd at Ashton Gate. Obviously, that's a huge opportunity for those guys. But actually, Bristol... Um, went w- really well last season. They, you know, ended up finishing second. Yeah. It was only their kind of form beginning of the season that would that would probably have given Gloucester the um, the favourites going into that game. So it was always going to be tight. And uh, yeah, I think by Bristol winning, it's just kind of kind of levelled the the table out a little bit in terms of some of those
3: teams towards the top. Okay, uh, Laura Capo celebrated a hundredth appearance for. For Richmond, um, now Richmond are a you know a perennial uh, powerhouse, or have certainly have been in in women's rugby, and that's a tremendous achievement, isn't it?
2: Yeah, fantastic. She's been a an absolute stalwart at that club, you know, for as long as I've been playing Premiership rugby. Um, yeah, it's fantastic that for her to get that accolade and to, to run out at her home game um, and to get a really good win for them as well. So yeah, really, really, trust for her. Um, and I'm sure she's got many more to come.
3: It's very difficult to understand just exactly where you are when you're in training camp. But the Sevens tournaments are approaching quite quickly. So how's it going?
2: Yeah, I mean, we literally started back last week. Um, so obviously, the the girls that are part of the World Cup squad have obviously had a bit of time off and on holiday. So we're, we've literally come back together um, only in the last week or so. So um, it's kind of hard to hard to put your finger on that one. But I mean. Yeah we've got a fantastic squad um we've got a lot of girls that were involved last season a lot of girls that you know were part of that olympic campaign a couple of years ago you know the the wealth of rugby experience is phenomenal within the side and it, like you say a little bit we kind of we need to get out there and test ourselves and um, we're going to have a couple of warm up tournaments or games against you know whoever we can get them against basically just to to make sure that we're you know for a lot of us we've not played sevens in a while so to make sure that we're well, I'm not sure you're ever sitting ready to play a seventh game, but
3: um, as ready as we can be. I tell you just quickly, you're, you're, when you when it comes to Commonwealth Games and Olympics, you're playing within the umbrella of a much larger tournament. It's not rugby focused; it's only one of many many sports. But that also brings a different sort of atmosphere to it. How much do you think it requires experience to to bring the best out of yourself to be able to you know understand exactly where you fit in the firmament of a tournament you know as big as that. Yeah, it's
2: definitely different. Obviously, going to the Olympics was our first taste of that multi-sport environment of, you know, like you say, being a much smaller, smaller part of, of what essentially was Team GB. Um, yeah, it's different. It, it takes a little bit of getting used to, but I think experience is, is definitely a good thing. Just, you know, just really kind of basic things like when you're going into the dinner hall, which is shared by essentially thousands and thousands of athletes, how almost like how you navigate that, how you, you're making the best choices, how you're using your time most effectively because, it, again, it takes time to get around the village. It's so big. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, we kind of learned on the hoof a little bit when we were in Rio, but I think, you know, for many of us, hopefully we'll be able to, to take that to the Commonwealth Games if we're involved and, and share that around. But it's a fantastic thing to be a part of a multi-sport event like that. It, yeah. You know, the, the environment within, you know, Team GB as it was at the Olympics and, and will be Team England and the Commonwealth is is amazing, and it really spirals and, and wants you to push on for the good performances.
3: Well, good luck with that, and good luck with the other tournaments that are coming up. Thank you very much, Emily Scarrett. you Ryan. very pleased to see I can now speak with uh, Gary Schofield at OBE, and. Uh, well, Gary, it didn't quite turn out as certainly I uh, thought it was going to. No,
6: it certainly didn't, Brian, no, and I uh, say, uh, I think as well, mate, I predicted that Cass would, uh, would beat the Leeds Rhinos by 20 points, and everybody knows my predictions in, <laughs> in rugby. League, or know, I'm not often very right, so I'm absolutely uh, delighted that uh, that Leeds won as soon yep. as being an next player and, and the next captain, and they just come up with with a performance like they have done, you know, many, many times on the big occasion, and uh, really people have asked the question, Brian, did Cass ball it? Do they experience, and the big match a case against the Cass um, maybe a little bit of those but at the end of the day you've got to give full credit to where it's due Leeds were just absolutely masterful they were too smart for Cass and Leeds big players just literally performed on the night
3: well before we uh, turn our attention to uh, Cass let's let's look at Leeds because uh, just escaped relegation in 2016 they were in a not a great place then You know, beginning of the season, round four, they got hammered by Cass and uh, many people were calling for the panic button to be pressed. And that's a a sort of a natural reaction, but they held the nerve. And I think, you you know, when uh, Brett McDermott was giving credit to the club as a whole afterwards, he was right, wasn't he? Because it would have been very easy for the board and the fans to, to panic at that point
6: it was indeed and also as well after that game when we when, uh, when Leeds got uh, hammered 66-10 Leeds were very smart after that performance from, a, from the coach and from the chief executive Gary Edmonton Brian Brian McDermott said after the game I wouldn't have expected my under-19s to have conceded that many points down here Gary Edmonton says, right uh, he wrote to all the supporters and said we're not panicking but we'll see where we are in a month yeah. what the players did after that game Brian they quite simply for what happened in 2016 they decided to stop speaking. they decided to say to themselves, Hey listen, we're a better side than this. You know, we've we've got to sort this out. We, uh, at the end of the day, you know yourself of course could only do so much. Gary Everton Gary Edrington put the trust in the coach and the players. He came out with his statement saying, we'll assess it in a month. And then the next month, Leeds went on a four-match winning run. The next game, they the Hammond. The Catalans by 40 points a week. After the Hammond, Hull by 50-odd points. And they went on the match winning run from there. So the players stopped sulking. They believed in their ability. And once they got themselves into a position where they knew they could perform when the pressure's on, then there you go. And the result exactly has happened on Saturday night.
3: Yeah, and you got to, I mean, uh, there are many people who uh, deserve mention. Gar, um, Garber, one of them, I was uh, very impressed by his carries for a lot of the time, made a lot of ground, especially after the initial contact. But I suppose everyone is focusing, and probably quite rightly, on the contribution, the final contribution to his, his illustrious lead career of Danny Maguire. But it wasn't just for me, he's, uh, he's grabbing the corner, to uh, to stop the, the first Cass' uh, uh, to try uh, was probably as important as anything else he did.
6: Yeah, it was. Uh, We've because, you know, but even... Well, the first couple of minutes, Castle were putting pressure on and People say, well, they may, should, should have took the two points, but the ability of what Casseford have got, they tested the Leeds' defence, and the, the Leeds' communication defence and scramble defence was brilliant. And, yeah, that was that was a big point for Leeds because everybody thought Eden and scored, but when you when you saw the sport and uh, the grab from Danny McGuire just to knock the ball out of his and was a massive massive play uh, for Leeds serving that for staff but, but the way Leeds controlled the game but but also for Castleford uh, Brian there were two big points for me in that for staff um, when he didn't show when he didn't show the the enthusiasm to, to get the ball before he went on the ingo- force, in goal then Paul McShane, yeah. he tried to be too clever, picking the ball in one hand, and then and then knocked the ball on in good field position. Leeds they just rose and they looked at Casford, the players and just said, I tell you what, you're not handling this. And overall Leeds, they were just too smart for Casford for the full eighty minutes.
3: Do you think the officials got all the uh, close calls right?
6: Yeah, yeah, I didn't have an issue with the officials whatsoever. It was a big call to give the uh, uh, the job to James Charles, This first grand final, big grand final from there, great atmosphere. So no, I didn't. I didn't have any issues for the first time I reckon for this season, Brian. I didn't have any issue
3: with the <laughs> official. Yeah, and um, you know, it always seems you know just a one pointer a drop goal. Many people think it's a bit of a you know admission of defeat. You come away with one point, but actually I have a different view of this because I think if you get some sort of reward and you get the ball back of a kickoff uh, and you're confident. Um, then what you're doing is all right. You, you concede in field position, but you're registering a just a point and saying, "All right, you know, you you give us the ball back, and we'll go another uh, we'll go uh, another 85 yards. We're quite happy with that."
6: Yeah, I don't, I don't have an issue with that whatsoever. But also to the job goal from Maguire was just at the right time, wasn't it? Just yeah. just before the hooter, and then you could see the Casford bodies draining a little bit because that makes it a two-point score again. They've got to score two tries from then. Yeah, but and you could see the cast the language going up at half-time. Leeds, they all gathered, and you know what? As it was going up, they had a smile on the face. They were loving. They were loving what they were doing there on Saturday night. And the big word was Leeds, just totally outsmarted. And yeah, they had big players. Young Jack Walker, eighteen years of age, brilliant at fullback. Risco, he's been hung uh, all season for his performances, but he was back to his best with his confidence. We all know what Maguire did from there. The forward, Arcel, Cup, mm-hmm. and Garth. Stevie Ward playing with a busted shoulder from there, and and I say Joe Moon contributing to actually off Maguire. It was just a brilliant team performance, and it's a cap it all. Robbie Burrow coming off the bench and the two legs lifting the trophy.
3: Well, Castleford swept the board at the Rugby League Awards, and probably you know quite rightly so. You know, in the context of when they were held, but I wonder um, at that point, some some people must have known that Zach Hardacre had, had mm. tested positive for cocaine, and that um, there was going to be. Trouble, And I just wonder, you know, delicate, squads are delicate things and I, I'm not, you can't blame it all on that, obviously on one player's absence, but it we really was not a good psychological uh, entrance into a, a test of this sort.
6: No, it wasn't, no, no, and as I say it happened all on uh, Thursday morning, it all came out at uh, Thursday dinner time. Yeah, there were, there were rumours of speculation three or four weeks before the uh, a drug test after the Leeds game on September the 8th, but... Uh, I would imagine that Casper themselves are players that said, right, this has happened. We need to concentrate on what we've got to do on Saturday night. And you know what people are saying? Was it the Zach Hardacre factor? Well, for mine, even if Zach Hardaker would have played on Saturday night, yeah, he may have caught that ball and lost the Maguire scored the try, but the way that Leeds played... I don't think Zach Hardy could think anything about that performance on Saturday night. And yeah, it was a blow. He has been, uh, with Lou Gale, Casper's best player all season. Yes, he was a, the kid's been a tall idiot. He, he's going to fully deserve what he gets from there. But hey, listen, let's take away from the champions, who were quite simply the best, and that were the Rhinos on Saturday night.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And then, to be fair, no one from Casper, included as a sort to make anything of it, I just uh, think as a squad balancing thing it could have had an effect. Now, he's not going to now go um, to the World Cup um, and he won't be in the England squad but neither will Sam Tompkins. Is that much of a surprise? Uh, well, I'm not
6: surprised. No, to be honest, I don't really think on form that he deserves to go and a little bit surprised about a couple of players have gone and you, when you look well, actually, Rashford's gone in, uh, instead of Jamie Shaw. I would have had Jamie Shaw instead of Rashford. I don't think he deserves. Warrington players have been selected. Kevin Brown, would he have been picked? i tell you what, Danny Maguire would do a far better job than what Kevin Brown showed. Mm-hmm. All season, Chris Hill, the front row for Warrington. Does he deserve to go on form? No, he hasn't. I think when I look at this World Cup uh, World Cup squad, Brian, what has been picked, you've been international side yourselves. And at sometimes you're asking, well, does this blow up? to be picked on form I think with this England squad at times here now what Wayne Bennett has picked is it's had something in place to get out of this squad yeah. the what it needs to get in if that makes sense to you no, I understand you know what, it, you here. What, what you mean what you've had at international level so but no it's no surprise to me that Tom is not in the squad but I would have preferred James Shaw certainly as the second fullback instead of Rashford uh, that's going to be the number one
3: and looking forward to it can I I mean this is the this is the only question in the in the whole playbook isn't it can anyone stop Australia
6: uh, Simple answer, no. It's a question of uh, you know who's going to be in the final with uh, with Australia. And you look at the, some of the sides where certainly the, uh, the Kiwis have defected to and Samoa are going to be very strong. Tonga, they're going to be very strong. Hope uh, England are going to be knocking on the door. Italy have got a few Australians in there. So hopefully uh, it's going to be a quality World Cup. There's only going to be one winner. That's Australia. The big question is who's going to be in the final. Instead of it being in the big three now, you can stay England in there, New Zealand, Samoa, Tonga, and maybe Italy as well.
3: Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure you are. Great as usual. Thank you very much, Gary. Thank you. It'd
6: been a pleasure, Brian. Thank you. Get off.
3: that's all for this week thank you very much for joining us you've been listening to brian moore's full contact in association with the telegraph please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast after all it's free and that way you'll never miss an episode and if you like what you hear and even if you don't like what you hear please leave a review goodbye Brian Moore's Full Contact is just one part of the Telegraph Sport podcast family, as you can also subscribe and download Total Football. Join Tom Gibbs and a host of Telegraph football reporters as they aim to take you behind the football stories of the weekend. Your Monday morning commutes will be instantly better for it.